you are listening to Dear Parliament with Rob Hutchinson because democracy doesn't just happen. Hey, welcome back to 101.9 High FM. Um, we're chatting today about critical thinking and uh, critical theory. Rob, are you there? Yes, I am. I'm afraid <laughs> I was uh, shortly delayed, but uh, I'm here now. Fantastic, fantastic. You can rescue me from trying to explain uh, critical theory, which is way out of my league. I'm focusing more on critical thinking rather than than critical theory, which I've explained pretty much in in depth. Rob, great to have you on on the show once again. Our our show last time, our our chat last time was really had thousands of topics in it. And one of them that really stood out to me was um, critical theory and how it's infiltrating uh, schools. It's uh, presenting itself as a valid subject or topic matter, yet it it has its roots in Marxist ideology, and that seems to be influencing the outcome. Um, what are your thoughts on critical theory being presented in our tertiary education? Well, I think the problem that we're really facing is is a little bit more severe than that, because if it was just presenting itself as critical theory, then we then it would be easy to identify and simply say, okay, well, we don't like this, uh, we don't want anything to do with this. But it's it's gotten to the point where it's no longer um, it's re- reached such a hegemonic point that it's become part of the background of how we think about many things, um, and there really isn't it, people don't really recognize it because it doesn't appear under its own name anymore it's become sort of the air we breathe in many of our institutions and this has been the case for decades now and so when you start talking about critical theory people look at you a bit funny unless they've really looked into it themselves um but generally speaking i mean critical theory is to t- uh, takes a, a a sort of a default skepticism towards any of the norms which uphold um, existing institutions. And uh, the the idea is that if uh, anything that stands in the way of full liberation um, is considered to be, is, is supposedly treated as problematic. Now that word is used a lot nowadays, but it has its origins in, in much older philosophy, um, and it used to mean, uh, it used to mean in a very strict sense, uh, there used to be two terms, necessary and problematic. And so, um, propositions which were necessary were things that were beyond doubt. And at the time it was things, you know, like, uh, God or the divine right of kings or so on and so forth. Things that can be taken as, uh, axiomatic in society, fundamental beliefs. And to treat them as problematic is to say that they are open to doubt, open to question, open to skepticism. And so what happened in the, the critical theory and postmodern turn is that everything was problematized. The, the means by which you undermine an ins, uh, authority and institutions is to treat them as something that ought to be, um, ought to be treated with a default of skepticism. And because this becomes universalized, it becomes this nihilistic approach that, um, that treats any kind of moral substance in society with the question, why should I? And so all of the, all of the approaches that we have for, uh, um, for, for regulating society and holding people to account get radically subjected to, uh, to an assault. 
And if you insist on the moral principles, um, you know, responsibility of respect for, for your uh, fellow human beings, of uh, reasonable debate and procedure, um, people will accuse you of holding on to these things for cynical reasons. And the particular reason for this is, and here's the Marxist influence, which is that all of these ideas are fundamentally seen as instruments of power. And th what, what, what happened in the middle of the 20th century after, in the post-war period is that people shifted from a pure class analysis to looking at things in terms of uh, race and gender and so on and so forth. And this, this has been pushed by uh, the, the CIA's uh, publishing curriculum, which at the time was used to undermine Marxism. Um, and so, but this got reincorporated, particularly in the 1980s, um, when you started seeing people like uh, Leclerc and Mouffe and uh, various other scholars like this, we try to unite all of the various struggles to undermine nationalism in the West um, and form a basis to, to, to subject all of our institutions to this kind of radical criticism using the crowbar of race relations and sexual relations. Um, and you'll see it in works like Foucault, where it's, it's a deliberate sort of weaponization of the interests of the fringes of society whether they be prostitutes, criminals, or um, um, sexual deviants, uh, any other kind of uh, form form of that uh, form that that deviates from the standard norm, which created and sustained the society. Mm. And I mean, yeah. this has been this has been considered as highly favourable by a lot of international capital organisations and by the so-called philanthropic organisations, which were created by the American. Uh, robber barons at the turn of the 20th century, which have still, which are still sort of held as, as organizations which uh, promote international uh, industrial and financial interests. Mm -hmm. um, talking about like the Ford Foundation, Carnegie, the, the Rockefeller uh, Foundation, all of these different groups, uh, m many of them support a lot of these sort of diversity and inclusion agendas because uh, by undermining nationalism and and, and, and national cohesion, um, they serve to they serve to push for greater international cooperation, greater international mm. consolidation, and this, of course, also uh, is favourable to the United States, who acts as an agenda-setting power and control uh, has a hegemonic position in the transatlantic community. Mm, definitely does. Um, what we, mm. Yeah, and so and because these these now sit in the most prestigious organisations, you know, the United Nations, the you know Oxford and Cambridge, all of the Ivy League colleges. Now that the, the, all of these ideas are standard, they're pushing them into they're being pushed into more and more localised and ordinary institutions that are not used to it. Um, and so, it, what has become consensus at the university level is now uh, being pushed as consensus everywhere else, and we, we are undergoing something of a cultural revolutionary change. Okay. But one that is fundamentally destructive. Uh, it because, is. Yeah. It does. Um, Rob, we're going to have to take a, a quick break. Sorry, our schedule's just a bit all over the place <laughs> today. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, let's uh, take a quick break, and we'll continue the conversation right after that. You are listening to Dear Parliament with Rob Hutchinson, because democracy doesn't just happen. 
Hey, welcome back to 101.9 IFM. I'm chatting today with Rob Dagan about critical theory and the power that it has. Uh, Rob, you mentioned um, some rather interesting things there about the influence that that critical theory has and also mentioned that it does seem to come from the fringes of of influence, which seems to be the case in all sort of political ideology presentation. Uh, why is that? Why is it, why is it normally the, the fringes of society, the, in fact, the minority that seems to get the most attention and have the most influence? Well, I mean, I wouldn't call it, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't phrase it that way. I mean, particularly in South Africa, the, the, these ideas are, are, are being utilized in the name of, um, in the name of the majority. So uh, I think I think the, the the only way to make sense of that as a, as a fringe phenomenon is to talk about it as um, you know weaponizing the fringes of the broader American empire against its uh, ethnic base, which 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 set the system up to begin with. And so you see an export of the United States version of race relations to the whole world. And, you know, countries like the United Kingdom, which have never really had any kind of racialization in their society, are retroactively sort of introducing it into their narratives of the past. Mm. Um, and, and, but in South Africa, the, these things sort of form part of a majoritarian discourse. And so the, um, it's being used as part of the decolonization process, um, which, it, I mean, as I said, it's it, it's a default skepticism to any institutional norms or moral uh, moral prescriptions in society, and the result of that is that it's it's completely nihilistic. There there is no real fundamental value that is being pushed forward. Instead, what's being pushed is this idea of individual uh, autonomy, which in which in which all of these different people use their their superficial. Uh, the political categories of identity is a way of leveraging personal power. Um, and this is very, very useful for people who are in, you know, managerial, uh, managerial positions like, you know, human resources or so, uh, or particularly human resources because mm. it allows you to, it allows you to weaponize your identity against your colleagues, um, for personal advancement. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I think, I think the fundamental problem here is that you know, I mean, we, we, we keep looking for a solution, but the problem is that the solutions are very scary. I mean, what happens in this kind of moral vacuum that's created by it is that you, you, you leave a society without any sort of structure or, or moral center. And what takes its place is always, is always going to have to be something that has a transcendent appeal. Um, and for, for much of South Africa, what's replacing it is something that, that, you know, this has been the core of the ANC's mission from for, uh, since since the 1950s, which is something called the National Democratic Revolution. Mm. I mean, most people. Will, I mean, if if people follow um, uh, James Mayberg's writing, I mean, you'll notice that the the idea actually comes from um, a collaboration between uh, the, the Soviet Union and various third world countries, where they uh, you, you, you gradually and then radically exclude, in, uh, exclude the dominant, uh, minority, which, you know, colonial, uh, colonial people 
from um, from the economy and then violently expel and massacre them um, in a way that's uh, that sort of and so there's very little difference between the National Democratic Revolution and German National Socialism. Um, and you see this manifesting when the two ide- two forms meet one another, the, the sort of Marxist. Uh, mm-hmm. it, and and the, people who are drawing this hard and fast line between socialist and liberal are making a mistake because at the core of these communist, socialist, liberal things are the same fundament is the same fundamental single uh, value, which is the idea of autonomy. Mm-hmm. The problem with that idea, if that is the foundation of your moral code, is it becomes, you know, very much like Alistair Crowley's maxim, do what thou wilt the whole of the law. Is it? And it does. Yeah. Look, Rob, Rob, I, I, have, I, I wish we could continue this conversation, but unfortunately we've genuinely run run out of time here. Um, let's Let's definitely continue this conversation next week and pen it in and, yeah. and get there on time because this is, this is definitely a topic that we have to have to get out there and I, I know the listeners will will definitely respond respond to this Rob it's been great um, sorry about the technical difficulties but let's continue this definitely <laughs> next week when we have I more the difficulties time. for all mine so I'm terribly <laughs> sorry <about that. laughs> alright thank you very much Rob